Welcome to the Bioinformatics CRO Podcast. I'm Grant Belgard, and joining me today is Damian Kell. Damian is the Chief Operating Officer at Baseballs. Welcome. Thanks, Grant. Happy to be here. Happy to have you. So can you tell us about what is Baseballs? What do you do there? Yeah, so Baseballs started out as a kind of a 23andMe for cats type of business. I think a good analogy would be Embark for dogs. However, I think in recent years, we've been kind of pivoting into more of a pet healthcare angle. So the goal of Baseballs is really to utilize as much genomics data as we can for our pets to profile their health and try to predict health outcomes, basically. So preventive medicine in some sense, right? So uh, being able to predict whether your cat or dog will have a disease before it happens so we can save you that huge veterinary bill that you might have down the line. And you, you mentioned dog. Are you guys moving into dogs? Dog is a very competitive market, uh, as you may know. Embark actually recently just got some a lot of funding from SoftBank. Uh, I think they're valued at $700 million now. <laughs> so yeah, that's obviously a big competitor. We are thinking about other animals. It's a bit intimidating to go into the dog space, so we might try to go in there with some other products. So for example, we actually just came out with a dental uh, oral microbiome product, actually, where we give you a risk score on whether your cat will develop periodontal disease or some other health issues. So we might try to enter the dog market with uh, that type of product. How, how actionable are those reports? So if you're a cat owner and you find your cat is, you know, in the 98th percentile of risk for periodontal disease, do you brush their teeth? I guess the way you're, you're supposed to, right? I don't think most cat owners do routinely brush their cat's teeth. <laughs> Most pet owners in general don't brush your cat's teeth right, or your dog's teeth. It's, uh, as you may imagine, very difficult to brush your cat's teeth. Getting your hands anywhere near their mouth is, is, is just asking for trouble, I think. I think the goal is to uh, at least let the cat owners around the world know that this is an issue. Periodontal disease in cats is a huge issue and a huge vet bill. So they are a series of products that is recommended by veterinary council that is not always an active brushing. Uh, maybe you can give them chews or water additives or certain types of food that might uh, alleviate those type of problems. And that's what we are kind of uh, advising people to do right now. And what kind of dynamic range do you have? You know, so a cat at either extreme kind of, what, what kind of difference in risk are you looking at? So, okay, well, let me talk a little bit about the bioinformatics of that, I guess. Our product is really just a swab that we provide to our customers. They swab their cat's mouth. They send it back to us. Uh, and from the very beginning, we've noticed that after uh, sequencing the DNA, around up to 10 to 15% of the DNA is uh, not cats. So what could that be? It's just whatever is in the cat's mouth. That could actually be residual food. That could be the oral microbiome flora. That has always been really exciting and interesting for us. And we didn't really act upon it until maybe a couple months or half a year ago. But what we did find is that we have a cohort of, you know, at least 30,000 cats. So 30,000 micro oral microbiome samples. Uh, and then we have good phenotype data that tells us whether, whether the cat is on a certain type of diet, whether indoor, outdoor cats, or whether they have any systemic diseases. So this became a really interesting thing for us because now we can look, try to look at a microbiome profile and correlate it with uh, all these phenotypic data that we've gathered. Dental disease is obviously the most direct thing that we can look at. 
So in our cohort of cats, we have hundreds of cats with periodontal disease and cats with other oral issues. And by looking at the microbiome, you know, certain populations of, my, of microbes in combination seems to be correlated to these disease states. You know, and, and we don't do 16S, for example. We are doing WGS. So we are doing, um, we are looking at everything that's in the mouth. So we do see fungus. We do see bacteria. We do see some archaea. And we actually see a lot of residual food things, too. We pick up on plants, maybe a spider that the cat ate while it was outside. You know, so we do pick up on those type of things, too. Do you have a longitudinal component to your data? So, you know, you can certainly imagine if a cat has active periodontal disease, that their oral microbiome probably looks pretty different at that point. But it would be super interesting if, you know, you had good predictive power, you know, years in advance to say, like, this cat's at high risk. Yeah. So, so, that's, so there are a series of studies that we're actually conducting right now with various clinics all over the country that are gathering these samples for us. So we're working with some kind of dental specialty clinics that are gathering samples before and after examination, for example, and maybe also follow up uh, weeks or months after examination. And it's through these samples that we want to start seeing what the predictive power really could be. You know, but the longitudinal uh, question is really interesting for us too, because we are seeing signal not just for oral or dental issues. We are seeing interesting signals for some systemic diseases too. Uh, and this is reported in literature somewhat. For example, CKD, chronic kidney disease in cats, there does seem to be some link between that and periodontal disease, for example. And in our data set, we are seeing a signal coming out for chronic kidney disease uh, via our microbiome data set. We are also seeing some signal for other autoimmune diseases or even allergies, which is kind of interesting. Uh, it's hard to kind of tease all of these things apart though, right? So getting good high resolution phenotypic data, I think is really our next big thing. How careful do you have to be about how you ask those questions, right? Because especially, you know, you can imagine if you're asking about behavioral traits, the same pet owner may describe their cat's behavior in very different ways. There's definitely an art uh, to asking questions from our customers, and that's something that we've had a lot of trial and error on. I think the best thing to do is to ask them uh, the same question in multiple ways, many times, spread across you know, multiple time points. And that's really how you can increase the confidence of those answers. That's something we're uh, building into our account system right now. The whole idea is that we would have a question bank in our back end where my, we might ask the same question 10 different times and we would present those questions to the customer uh, at various times and hopefully they will be consistent in their responses. Have you ever looked at what's predictive of inconsistency, right? Like, Do, do you have certain respondents who are just consistently inconsistent? No, we have not looked at that, but that is actually really interesting. Inconsistent score. That's Yeah, we should definitely do that. <laughs> What would be super crazy is if you found something different about the cats, right? Like maybe certain cat breeds are associated. With, you know. But but th this brings up an interesting point, right? Most of the people we have on the podcast are in companies that are essentially, you know, B2B or, you know, they're just drug development companies. What are your experiences with running a B2C science company, right? Because I mean, generally in tech, people always talk about, you know, B2C has a lot more challenges. <laughs> I have never worked at a B2B, so I don't, I can't really make that comparison. However, I could say that D2C has definitely been a, a huge learning experience for me. So I would say that 
you have to balance uh, satisfying your customers and maintaining the scientific integrity, I guess, of, of your work. And that's always difficult because they're not always in sync. Right. P- people always want you know more information, right? Like, what kind of wine will I like based on my DNA kind of thing? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because it's very easy to kind of stretch the science to accommodate what people want to see. And there's a limit to that, right? Yeah, it's, it's always a push and pull, to be honest. So at Baseballs, you know, I'm the COO. I run kind of the science and the tech and the lab operations. And then we have the other half of the company, which is run by Anna, who deals with customers and acquisition and marketing and all of that. And I find that it's a great push and pull between me and her. Because, you know, I tend to always think I need to be crazy rigorous. Uh, we can't show anything. But she's always like, you know, if, if it's interesting, as long as we explain it well, we should be able to show it to our customers because, they're, you know, we have to trust that they're smart enough to understand not to take this at face value. So I think it's always this push and pull between kind of the marketing side of things, the D2C side of things and the science side of things. And that's been a really good experience for me personally, I think. What have been uh, the biggest surprises for you in your, your baseball's journey? I think part of the reason why I decided to not stay in academia and go industry was there's multiple reasons why. And I'm sure most graduating PhDs or postdocs will understand the reasons why. But I guess the biggest epiphany I found was that I, I enjoy building things rather than answering questions. And I think that's kind of the biggest epiphany I had during baseballs is that, you know, building up a lab, setting up these processes, seeing things actually happen and producing a product is extremely enjoyable. What elements of that do you think you were prepared for through your your education and training? And what did you really have to pick up on the job? The advice I can give to any PhD students going into their PhD is learn transferable skills. You know, you're not there to learn a very specific lab technique that only five labs in the world can do. You're there to learn how to think. You're there to learn how to pick up a new skill when it's presented to you. So learn those type of skills. Don't memorize concepts. You know, don't learn some niche technique. I think bioinformatics is very much a field where you don't learn specific techniques because there aren't really any standardized techniques in bioinformatics, right? It's kind of the Wild West still in some sense, I feel like. You really have to understand sysadmin very well. You really have to understand algorithms very well, data structures. I think all of these things that you have to learn through your bioinformatics PhD helps you in industry. Uh, it definitely helped me in you know, setting up a lab, knowing how to analyze the data that comes out of it, setting up pipelines. What I had to learn on a job is really more management skills, I would say. In the lab, I manage you know, a couple of technicians. Uh, I manage the tech team. So how you get all these different people to kind of share your vision and execute on that vision, that's very difficult. It's not something you learn during a PhD and I had to learn that on a job. Let's talk about you. So when you were a kid, did you know you wanted to be a scientist? I was a very unremarkable student as a kid, I would say. In, in university, I changed my majors a lot. I didn't really know that I want to be a scientist. I actually liked graphic design. I actually was a graphic designer in high school. Have you ever used that since? Has, has that been one of those transferable skills that came in handy? Actually, you know, actually, the current baseballs report, I designed it all and I coded it all. So, you know, there were some transferable skills there. You know, I did film studies for a little bit in, in college and I decided to go into genetics because I also, I, so I did a lot of programming in high school too. I made my own websites and you know, all that type of thing. 
you know, back then in the late 90s, that's what a lot of the computer geeks did. And of course, I did that. So those programming skills kind of, I guess, led to my interest in genetics because there are those obvious parallels, right, between programming and genetics. After learning more about genetics, you realize those parallels don't really apply really that much. But, but I think that's what kind of made me want to become a scientist through computer science, actually. You ended up, I guess, landing on genetics at UC Davis. What did you do after that? I actually did not think about going to bioinformatics for, I don't know why. I wanted to do lab work, actually. So I was lab technician for a couple of years, worked on Trisophila. You know, I did a lot of molecular work, did a lot of injecting stuff into Drosophila eggs to make transgenic lines and all these things. After a while, I was honestly, I was a bit lost <laughs> for a little bit, just didn't know what I wanted to do. At some point, I decided I need a change of scenery. So I said, you know, I should do a PhD. Let's go to another country and do it, do a PhD. So I went to the UK and did my PhD there. What attracted you to the UK? It was a different country. <laughs> that was main. That was the main reason. I, you know, I felt like I've been in California for so long. I feel like when you're in one place for too long, you lose the opportunity to kind of reinvent yourself because you're surrounded by all the things that you know. Going to the UK allowed me to kind of reinvent myself, I guess, to maybe see myself in different lights. And it was kind of there that I developed, I guess, that that state of mind where I want to do a PhD, I want to do all of these things. I was able to, I guess, be more aggressive about my goals in some sense. And what, what are your thoughts on the British PhD training system as compared to the American system? I mean, there's pros and cons to both, right? I think the biggest pro for me on a very practical level is that you're done in four years, five years max. After that, it's really looked down upon if you're not done. The university there is, I think, they actually lose funding, I think, if they have PhD students for longer than a certain amount of time. So they really are incentivized to get them finished. So that's practically, that's one of the biggest cons. And personally, for in the bioinformatics field, the UK is extremely strong in bioinformatics, as, as you probably know. So my supervisor and a couple other PIs around the, around the UK would yearly set up a genomics conference that I would be a part of, where I get to meet all the other great bioinformaticians there. And that was a real, really good opportunity for me to connect with others and learn as much as I can about the entire field. And you must have liked it a lot, because after you finished your PhD, you stayed. Yeah, I stayed for a couple of years. Yeah, after my PhD, I, you know, I thought about staying in academia. I worked on some genome assemblies. I worked on some transcriptomic stuff. So doing a postdoc at Oxford was very really eye-opening to me because a lot of really, really smart people, and you just learn things every new things and interesting things every day. Especially, I was in a zoology department where you get to look at other people's research on all this variety of animals and biology that's out there. And that's, I found that to be really interesting. I think that's one of the biggest reasons why I stayed around for a couple of years. Why did you leave? I left because I decided I didn't want, did not want to stay in academia. And if I didn't want to stay in academia, I might as well go home. And I feel like the startup culture in the U.S., especially California, is just more vibrant. And when you returned to the U.S., you started at uh, HHMI, right? Yeah. So through my some of the work that I did in the Oxford, became a consultant at HHMI, where I worked on some single-cell transcriptomic projects and some more genome assembly projects, actually. And that was a really cool experience for me because Genelia is just a great place to work. They basically built this entire compound where you just stay there and everyone just loves science and does science. It's great. Bit of a scientific monastery, right? 
isolated and yeah monastery that's a really good word for it yeah <laughs> what was your thinking in in leaving there was it basically you really wanted to do the startup thing and what's the kind of the story like how did you and anna meet yeah, I'd really want to do the startup thing. So I was in California, kind of remote working for for HHMI. I, I just felt like kind of doing the same type of analysis on the same data sets or it's just got a little bit boring for me, I guess. And, and I really want to, I guess I just really want to get into the startup world and see how that works. So my mom was an entrepreneur in Taiwan and she's a you know successful businesswoman there. And I've always wanted to see what that was like. I, I think at the end of the day, I wanted to work for myself. Didn't want to work for someone else. So my wife did PhD with me at the same place. Uh, we came to California together. We both are kind of into this whole startup scene. So we kind of put off, put out some feelers. Was she also American or? Uh, she's actually Bulgarian. So uh, she did her PhD in the same lab, got together there, got married in UK. So we put out some feelers for the uh, so startup world. So I has NGS experience and I was in need of someone with that experience. So, you know, we kind of met at a coffee shop one day, talked about our respective skills and our interests, and I thought that we were a perfect fit to uh, do this company together. So I joined and I set up the lab, did all the pipelines, and it's just, yeah, and we went from there. What did you find is some of your biggest challenges when you, when you got started with baseballs? I think something that carries over from academia and into the first few years of industries as imposter syndrome. I think a lot of people have that. The first year at baseballs, you know, I'm I'm the scientist, I know the science. However, the business side of things, it's not something I've experienced in. So whenever I had to make a business decision, I think I would always second guess myself. And I think it kind of stems from that imposter syndrome. But I think at the end of the day, what I learned is that business decisions usually, just like any scientific decision, you get a lot of data, you analyze it, and you make a decision, right? There's nothing special about it. Yeah, so getting over that imposter syndrome, I guess, and having more confidence in, in the decisions that you're making, yeah, I think that's that was what I learned. Do you think you'll ever leave the startup world? Uh, well, I mean, I, I just had a kid. Uh, he's one year old, so it's a COVID baby. Uh, if I ever leave the startup world, it will probably be because it's becoming too crazy and I can't spend enough time with my kid. That's probably going to be the reason. It is tough. What advice would you have for, for people considering doing the startup thing, right? Like we have a number of clients who started their, their company after, you know, having spent a long career in, in big pharma where kind of, you know, everything was taken care of for them, you know, and they would focus on their one area and they were, you know, the expert on that, but, you know, they could access any kind of expertise they wanted just by going down the hall. And obviously, you know, that, that's not the case at the startup, right? So, you know, what, what advice would you have for people like that considering making this jump? I, I think it hugely depends on what your business is, actually. I can tell you from a kind of B2C point of view that scaling up is very, very hard, especially in a biological context. It's very easy to get an assay or a product or a test to work a couple of times. But to get it working consistently for thousands or tens of thousands of times, that's extremely hard. So again, so it depends on what industry you're in. If, if, if you're in an industry where you have to do that thousands and tens of thousands of times, you have to think about that. And you have to think about the long-term cost of what you're doing. Because it's also very easy to over-optimize and over-engineer in the beginning. Buy all this fancy equipment that you find that you will just never use 
because there's simpler solutions out there. So I would say worry about scaling up if, if, if that's the industry you're in. That brings up an, an interesting point, right? The funding climate right now for human therapeutics is quite hot. How well does that translate to, to pet health? Pet health is actually one of the industries that grew a lot last year during COVID, and it's steadily growing. And because of that, there are actually plenty of investors interested. I think the problem that stops an investor from actually putting in the money at the end, though, is that there hasn't really been any big exits that they can see in this sector. So I feel like maybe that's what's holding it back a little bit. So I think there's a lot of money pouring in, and because there's not really much exit, and most of these investors are looking for a relatively quick turnarounds, they're a little bit more hesitant to put that money in. Can you tell us about how you use bioinformatics at Basepause? Yeah, so just kind of brief overview of what we do. Um, I think we're actually one of the few companies that use NGS for this type of a product. I mean, as many of you may know, 23andMe and Embark and these other companies, they all use microarrays, which relies on a already good existing resource for that organism, like humans and dogs. When we first started Basepause, a really good feline genome was produced actually a couple years back. Uh, so we were able to take advantage of that. However, in terms of whole genome data sets for cats, I think when we first started, there were less than 100 in NCBI. So we had to sequence a lot of those things ourselves, you know, build up our own reference panel, uh, our own imputation panel. So I bet, I bet you could create a crazy cat assembly at this point if you have 30,000 cats at this point. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, that was a project that we were thinking of doing. However, there was a really interesting paper that just came out earlier this year where they, uh, they were able to do a haploid assembly of the feline genome by sequencing a wild cat and domestic cat and then the offspring. So from the reads from the offspring, they were able to say, all of these reads are the domestic cat, all of these reads are the wild cat. And then they did a pseudo haploid assembly using that method. It's really cool. So that's a really, really good genome. And I don't know if we can beat that, to be honest. <laughs> One interesting thing we are thinking of doing is to try to produce a haploid stem cell line, because that is something that's possible to get a site out of the out of a cat and use strong TM chloride to kind of activate it. And it can sometimes become a haploid stem cell line. And when you have that, then you can sequence that genome. It's a haploid genome. So you don't have to worry about heterozygosity or any of that. So at Baseballs, we do low-pass sequencing. We sequence at around 0.5 to 1x. And then using our imputation panel, we impute a lot of other markers. Uh, usually we end up with a couple million markers at the end. And then using these markers, we use a machine learning algorithm. We just use a random forest-like algorithm, really, to assign haplotype segments to a known breed. And then we calculate the similarity of your cat to this breed. So that, that's how kind of what we do for that breed analysis portion of things. And for the health marker side of things, we have a multiplex amplicon panel that we've developed where we interrogate, I think, right now, 40 or so loci using this uh, multiplex amplicon approach. Uh, and then we give you the status of whether it's a heterozygote, do you have a mutant copy, how many copies you have, that type of thing. And we are expanding that panel into about 120 markers by the end of the year. What conditions have you found good predictive power for? So this is the stuff I get excited about, right? Because I, I feel like when people talk about bioinformatics, they have this artificial separation between genotype and phenotype. I think the, the correct view of looking at it is it's just all data. 
It's all just some kind of dimension of the sample that you collect. And I think when you throw all of that together into a multi-omic analysis, that's where the power comes in, right? So that's what we're working on right now. So like, you know, like I was saying that CKD, the chronic kidney disease signal that we're seeing from the oral microbiome, we're seeing a big signal from that. However, it overlaps with the periodontal disease signal. So it's hard to tease apart. Does this cat really have chronic kidney disease or does it just have periodontal disease, right? However, if we apply a layer of genomic data or some other phenotype data that we get, we find that we can try to tease that apart a little bit more. So we're still trying to find the set of features that can best tease those things apart. But I think we're getting close to some interesting set of features. And how translatable do you think your findings in CATS will be to, for example, human health? So there was a great review paper by Leslie Lyons, who is kind of the, the main person in the feline genetics field. She wrote a review uh, talking about how if you compare the feline genome to the human genome, it's actually one of the closest mammals that exist. I think it's the most synthetic aligned genome compared to every other mammal out there. You know, if you look at something like genes involved in eye development, I think all of those genes are synthetic in, with the human block of genes. So I, I think there's a lot of translation potential by studying felines. And I think mo a lot of the known health markers in felines have almost a direct homologous uh, variant in the human gene too. Is that something that BasePaws is planning at looking at in a systematic way? It's one of my pipe dreams, to be honest. I mean, there's so many things we can do, but I think maybe let's five years down the line, whatever it is. Let's say we collect a ton of cat data. We collect a ton of dog data. You know, can we have a pan-mammalian database where we just look at all the variants and use that to narrow down disease markers, right? So... In humans, you find 80 potential markers for diabetes. You get to narrow that down to 10 because you find homologous variants in these other animals. I think, I think that's a great usage of this data. How do you think about R&D and kind of building capacity versus, you know, having a, a sustainable revenue-driven company, right? Because generally in the biotech space, you know, most companies are pre-revenue for a very long time. And obviously, BasePause already is you know, very actively engaging with customers and has been for a long time. But, but at the same time, you're doing a lot of internal R&D work. So kind of what's your framework for that? In terms of R&D, I always separate in two buckets. One is maintaining or optimizing what we have currently. That means lowering costs for library preps, how we can normalize things better. And the second bucket is what new products we can get from that. In terms of new products, I think for the last one or two years, we've mainly been focused on the bioinformatics side of things because it's cheaper. That's really the reason. We have a lot of data, and can we generate new products from that data, which we have with the oral microbiome product, for example. But I think now we're actually close to the end of our Series A funding. I want to start focusing more on kind of lab assays or products or tests that we can do. Something I'm kind of interested in doing is one of those epigenetic clock aging tests type of things. Oh, that would be cool. Yeah. Um, I, you know, one thing I'm kind of interested in, in figuring out is there are a couple of papers on this already. Is the DNA you get from saliva, does that correlate with the blood DNA that's traditionally done in the epigenetic clock studies? There are a couple of papers you know, looking at that and saying that it does correlate. So maybe we can do one of these epigenetic aging tests through the saliva DNA. That would be cool. Very cool. Very cool. How would you think about the kind of commercial path for an, uh, you know, a cat 
saliva-based epigenetic test of aging? I think biological aging is something that people are just interested in. And being able to gather that data and compare it to its real age can give you a lot of insight into longevity and a host of other interesting biological concepts. Longevity is something that, you know, me and my wife are personally interested in. So I think a lot of cat owners would probably be interested too. And we're always looking for products that are not the standard 23andMe ancestry or health marker type of tests. And this is just another one of them. Because I feel like if you want to enter, especially a dog space or other animals, you need to have something different. How do you think about engaging with your community? So the cat community is very different from, as you may imagine, other dog or human communities. They are a lot more obsessive about their cats, I would say, in a good way. I don't want to suggest that's a bad thing. And I think they're a lot more curious about their pets than they are about themselves, actually. That's actually one kind of trend that I've seen. I wonder if that applies in the human space, too, is, you know, I would much rather get a DNA kit for my kid than for myself, to be honest, because I think most people are like, oh, I know myself. I don't need to know more. So I think in the pet space, that kind of applies, too. I would much rather find out more about my cat or my dog, who can't really tell me what's wrong, than myself, right? I think maybe that's one advantage we have over um, kind of the human space in some sense. Great. Is there any advice you'd have for you know, scientists, you know, looking at transitioning into the biotech startup world? I think as an academic scientist, I don't want to paint the situation with a broad brush here, but I think uh, the academic mindset, sometimes it's like, I have a choice. I can either do really good science or I can have an enjoyable personal life. You know, I think it's a false choice. Personally, I think you can have both. When a scientist gets into industry, they maintain that mindset a little bit. And I think industry sometimes will try to take advantage of that. So I think uh, any academic scientist going into industry should change their mindset. They should see their value, get rid of that imposter syndrome, and know that you're probably one of the few people who can answer or solve these type of problems in, in the field. Have that confidence, I guess. You know, I think in academia, when you're surrounded by a bunch of really intelligent people, it's kind of hard to have that kind of confidence. I guess don't carry over your academic baggage into industry would be my best advice. Right. It's like a lot of, a lot of really smart people who enjoy shooting each other down, right? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you have any parting words for our listeners? I mean, since this is Bioinformatics CRO, I mean, I, I guess I want to say I'm excited about the future of this field. There's a lot of interesting things happening, and I would encourage more people to join this industry because there is a lack of bioinformaticians. We're hiring, by the way. So, you know, apply for a job with us if you're interested. <laughs> We're looking for bioinformaticians. Thank you so much. It was great having you on. Yeah, no problem, Grant. Thank you.